And we are live. Good morning, guys. Hi, Logan. Good morning. Yeah, we'll wait a few seconds for people to uh, hop on. I know it's Thanksgiving week. I know you're in Dallas and many people are probably out of town. So we may not have a lot of people hop on the call today, but uh, we never give up. <laughs> yeah. And those we'll who don't, you come on. We love the commitment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I have... Uh, the version we're using today is the old version or the new version, right? The live is different from last week. Yeah. Yes. Good morning, Amin, and a couple of Facebook users. Uh, and Ed. Ed Chow, good morning. All right, here we go. Eileen, Eric, good morning, guys. You guys had a wonderful week. Um, Logan's in Dallas. He's on with us. And... Uh, we're going to get started soon. He's going to read your questions and uh, we'll continue the session. <laughs> yeah. Good morning, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for hopping on Thanksgiving week. Uh, we're excited for another good Q&A session. Have a lot of good questions. And um, just a reiteration. So whenever we use this software called StreamYard, it allows us to add a little bit to the screen, including the messages that we're reading off. But in order for us to see your name, um, if you can, if you haven't already, there's a link at the top of this post that says StreamYard uh, slash Facebook. And if you click on that link, you click a couple buttons and then we can see your name on our end. If, uh, if you don't do that, then your name shows as Facebook user. Yeah. Thanks, Logan. All right. Should we get started? I think so. We'll go ahead and kick it off. Uh, so first question that we have for today is from Jonathan Nguyen. And I uh, said, is it possible to get a hard money loan for the down payment? My current price range, it's very competitive. I have seen higher price properties that are good deals, but I wouldn't be able to make the down payment. If not hard money, do you have any suggestions? Yeah, I, mean, I don't recommend it, Jonathan, to get hard money. Um, hard money is expensive. You're probably looking at 10 to 15% if you're getting private money and you combine that with the other 65, 70% loan you're borrowing from a bank at potentially four to five percent uh typically property is not going to cash flow with that type of scenario uh, leverage um unless you have i mean there are exceptions unless you have a, a buyer that you're going to double escrow and you're going to close your escrow and immediately uh have the your backup buyer close escrow with a higher price and you pick up the difference that i would do all day long but if you're speculating, you're going to buy this building and the market's hot, you're going to put it in the market, sell it. Um, that's going to be very risky. So I don't recommend it unless you have a backup plan. You know. All right. Uh, next up, we have Michael Ward. It's good to see you. He has two questions. First being, how do you find good contractors that you trust when you're investing in new markets? Yeah, you know, I'd like to go with the leasing broker reference, uh, referrals. Uh, if you have a property management company you've already engaged before, uh, reach out to them. Or if you're talking to somebody uh, to engage on this new investment uh, property, I would definitely ask them. I mean, those are the local uh, companies, brokers that deal with a lot of other properties they're managing. And they typically know which, you know, general contractor um continues to come back to those properties and do a lot of work 
you want to go with that, you know, referral. All right. And the next question for Michael, what metro markets are you most actively looking for investment opportunities in? Um, Houston, Phoenix, Dallas, San Antonio, obviously Orange County. Uh, I mean, I'll look at LA County, San Diego County, anything in Southern California. Those are the markets I'm uh, familiar with and I've been in and out of for the past 30 years. So your market may be different if you're in New Jersey, New York, Florida. I like Florida. Um, you know, for me, it's these markets have worked well and I'm familiar with them. And there is enough uh, movement in these markets for me to choose good properties from. Awesome. Uh, next question from Magnus. Magnus. So <laughs> it's a very long one, I bet. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's good context. So I'll start by giving the context, then we'll get into the question. So first, I'm in the process of negotiating a PSA, purchase sales agreement with a buyer on my Glendale, Arizona office property. And the buyer is insistent about asking for financial warranties as a larger mm -hmm. tenant is still receiving free rent through February 2022. The buyer wanted a nine months blanket warranty for the entire building's financial performance. And my attorney says I shouldn't give them any warranties. So I countered by removing warranties from the PSA, but I imagine we will have to meet in the middle at some point. What would you do in a negotiation like this? My attorney says warranties aren't market, mm -hmm. quote unquote market, when there isn't a significant rent roll and the buyer is collecting estoppels, but the buyer's broker is claiming six months yeah. of warranty or market. Yeah, that's very accurate what his attorney is saying. Uh, there are exceptions. Again, uh, if you have an anchor tenant that's got a rent abatement that runs several months post-closing, yeah, it's very typical for you to credit those months to the buyer in escrow. I ask for credit every time there's a rent abatement um, on a deal I'm buying. But in terms of warranty or guaranteeing a tenant's performance, uh, I never have agreed to that. I mean, that's basically, there's no guarantee. You're selling it with that risk. Um, if he's making a lot of money, I'm talking about Magnus, uh, you may want to guarantee, you know, three months uh, rent on that specific tenant plus credit them the rent abatement. So in other words, if your rent abatement is till January 22, you're going to guarantee performance up to April 2022 and give them the rent abatement credit. That's what I would do. All right. Uh, next question from Nick Gold. Nick is one of our newer members. Good to see you. Uh, first question from him is, what is the typical ROI that you target, uh, not cap rate? Yeah, it depends on the market. Obviously, California tend to have a much better future uh, appreciation in price, but the cap rates ROI is less on the cash flow. So on California, I'm looking at anything with a seven cap, and that would result in an ROI for me when I leverage it about 10 percent you know sometimes sometimes nine to eleven percent um out of a state i don't get as much price appreciation holding the asset but the cap rates are higher so it gives me a higher cash on cash uh return and those i look at minimum 12 percent um, all the way to 22 percent so it's a big range but again it depends if the property is 78 percent in houston or is 100 percent retail center in virginia um it would be different, right? I would look at minimum 20% cash on cash if it's fully stabilized and it's got long-term credit tenants, basically buying a bond 
and just parking my money. Awesome. And then his follow-up question is, should I invest in A, B, or C class properties and mm -hmm. why? Well, I would stay away from C properties, uh, but A and B is great. Every time economy, you know, uh, expands and rents go up, tenants from A class, class A buildings, you know, they tend to go down to a class B for affordability. So class B does great. And then again, during recessions, class A tend to do much better because their rents go down and tenants that want to upgrade to a higher image building, they can pay the same rent and move to class A like it is right now. In Orange County, you can get, uh, it's almost 50 cents on a dollar for a high-rise building in Irvine, uh, Costa Mesa area. There are some buildings selling, uh, you know, leasing for two bucks a foot where it was four bucks a foot just 18 months ago. So um, depends on also the opportunity, right? So if it, if you have class A, class B, what one is selling at significantly lower uh, price, deeper discount because the seller is more motivated, it's just more of a distressed asset, well, I would buy that one. So price for me dictates what to buy, but I would stay away from much older class C buildings. Awesome. And then last question from Nick. Do you have a mentor? And who is it, if so? Well, my early, early on, I had my landlord, Mr. David Williams. Uh, this is 1996 to 1998. Um, he really didn't teach me much, but he sent his broker. But I've always chat with him every time I pay him his rent. And I've always followed up, you know, with him, what he's buying, what he's selling. But overall, almost everything I've learned has been um, based on trial and error. But I did look up to him, and he's the one that recommended me getting into commercial real estate. And he actually sold me the first retail center his broker did, uh, sourced it for me. So he kind of held my hand early on on the first property. But after that, it was off to the races, learn, fail, and get up and do it better. <laughs> All right. Next questions from Christopher. Uh, good to see you as well. Christopher Brancotti. He said, I'm almost done with construction on our commercial property in New York city. What is the best way to find a triple net lease for 65,000 square feet of space that we have? We will also do the build out for the potential lease. Yep. That would be brokers. Uh, Christopher, you should have already picked your, uh, you know, uh, uh, race horse. Uh, the best top leasing broker by now before you even complete your project. But it's not too late. Uh, find out who's doing a lot of the leasing and you can go on LoopNet, CoStar, punch in asset class that you're in. I think it's office, you said. And uh, put building 100,000 feet uh, minimum or 60,000 feet minimum. And then see who has the listings uh, for your type of property and if you see the same broker on three buildings and pick the phone up and call them and say, hey, you know, I have this building, this project I'm finishing. How many leases have you done? And then if they send, provide you a list of deals they've closed um, and they seem to be energetic, excited about your project, then you meet with them in person and you hire them. They're the ones that are going to market your property. Awesome. Next question from Eden Lee. He said, have you ever made an exception to your criterias when purchasing commercial real estate? For example, a property that met your criterias, but you decided to pass on it 
or if a property did not meet some criteria, but you still decided to buy it? If yes, can you tell us why you did and did it work out well in the end? Yeah, there is always exception to the rule. Um, yeah, I typically say never buy empty buildings, 100% vacant, but I have bought, you know, at least three or four buildings in past 30 years that did extremely well for me. This building is one of them. Uh, bought this, it was vacant, boarded up, Wells Fargo owned it, took it back. Um, it was bank owned, bought it for 3.3, and now it's worth well over 10 million. Uh, it did great for me. Uh, why did I buy it? I made an exception to the rule because I could occupy it, get 90% financing, and the price was such a deep discount. I just saw a lot of opportunity for the next 10 years to add value. So the other building is bare. The one I bought for 22 million three months ago. Again, that's, that was 100% vacant with significant deferred maintenance, but the value was 41 million six years prior, and I bought it for 50 cents on a dollar at 22, and I already have an offer for 30 million on the property. So there is significant meat on the bone. Uh, when there is those circumstances, I do make an exception. So whether it's the demographic, whether it's you know the occupancy, um, whether is the location. Um, so it all depends, but common, co most commonly though, you got to go with the criteria because those have worked for me, but there are exceptions to the rules. Like I said. All right. Yeah. It's always fun hearing numbers like that. Uh, next question from Sean. He said, what options <laughs> do I have if I'm looking to buy a retail property with mm -hmm. two out of eight tenants paying significantly below market rents? and their leases do not expire until the end of 2026. As a new landlord, can I increase the rent within their lease term? I need some guidance. Well, typically, no. That's why they have the lease contracts. Um, how can you increase the rent? 2026, that's uh, you know five years from now. Uh, I wouldn't see any reason why a tenant would want to pay more when they're locked in. Um, don't know what to tell you there unless you offer them six months free rent and then amortize that into the lease new lease for them that would be, make their effective rent rental rate higher because you're spreading the remainder of the lease term outside of the six month rent, rent abatement that may work but i don't recommend it five years is too long to for you to really make any meaningful impact on the rental rate if it was two years, you could bury six month or one year rent abatement in there and increase the rental rate, uh, average rental rate uh, to give you a benefit on the higher price. But five years is too long. All right. Next question from Edward Cho. Uh, when working with a lender, how important is it to have a lender that specializes in commercial real estate? I'm currently looking for lenders mm -hmm. and was referred to one but their business is only 15% in commercial properties. Well, it's very important. You want to go with a lender that knows uh, the market, knows the product, and they're uh, very motivated to lend on that asset class. So if you have a lender that does 85% residential, only 15% commercial, well, the first uh, issue you're going to have, they're not going to have many products for you because that's not their niche. So... Um, unless it's your portfolio, you know, a balance sheet lender, um, you know, a small community lender that you've been working with for many years and they can give you a very low rate, 
higher leverage, offer something other lenders can't, I would go with a mortgage broker to get, you know, uh, uh, more options in your financing. All right. Uh, next question from Edward. What does it mean to put a deal on your contract and how does this process work? Deal on the contract means you are tying up the property with a PSA, purchase sales agreement, um, just a sales contract. That means you have gone on their contract with the seller or buyer if you're the seller. Uh, that's all it means. All right. And then his last question, can you explain how cell towers, how cell tower rights and leases work? I know you recently had to deal with this scenario. I'm looking at a property that has a cell tower, but it's not included. Any negotiation tips to get this as part of the deal? Yeah, cell towers are basically tenants on your roof. Um, now, you could go ahead, carve out that tenant and sell that lease with a uh, roof easement, which is probably what this property owner did. That's why it's not included. Um, I have two of them on this building, and I've sold those for you know 800 grand many years ago. <clears throat> so if I sell this building right now, even though you'll physically see uh, cell tower equipment on the roof, but there's no income on the rent roll. And there will be notation on there that the cell towers are excluded because they're on an easement. So uh, negotiate that. It's probably impossible to negotiate because those have already probably been sold or maybe the seller is trying to carve that out and sell it via easement. But typically they do that before they put the property on the market. Um, because that easement has to be recorded on the title and they would want to do that before they list it for sale. So I'm going to assume that he's already done what I've done and that's why it's not uh, included. All right. And uh, while we're getting to the other handful of questions that we have, I see some people already dropping questions in the comments. If you have questions that weren't sent in earlier, go ahead, drop those there. We'll move into the comments here pretty soon. Uh, so the next question that we have is from Mostafa. He said, doing flip deals in size of over $3 million with a 100% single investor fund, what mm -hmm. profit share would you recommend? And please talk about important aspects to consider. Well, Mustafa, that's a hard one to say. It depends how much are you rolling up your sleeve and how much are you providing value to the investor? Is this a 100% deal you sourced, 100% uh, lease that uh, you sourced with a high cap rate? Well, if you're not doing much, you know, typically it's 80-20 um, profit sharing and you can negotiate that. There is no really nothing set in stone. You can do 80-20, 20% comes to you as a, you know, a person that sourced it and manage the deal for the investor. And if it's a property 70% occupied, it's close to you and you're going to become the asset manager, sort of and meet with contractors you know get a list of laundry list of things you need to do the property to add value then it's usually you know 70 30. if it's 100 percent vacant building and it's going to take a two-year project because you have to do a lot of construction uh and you have to do a lot of rehab and it's going to take you two years to stabilize it and it's going to be a very much hands-on project then it could be 60 40 50 50 it's all up for negotiation so yeah, to answer you, there is no one answer, but I hope I shed some light and some options for you there. All right. Next question from Zoran. 
when bidding out your projects with the general contractors, mm-hmm. can you tell me if you go item per item on the project list and negotiate with them where needed? 100%. Yeah, every bed I get, it has to be broken down to um, if, if it's by floor or by tenant, by suite number. If it's a 30 suite office building and you're replacing all the lights, obviously they're not going to list it suite by suite. They're just going to put, you know, LED conversion. <laughs> 15 grand, 12,000, whatever. Uh, But if you're doing a tenant improvement for a suite, obviously you definitely want to have all that for that suite broken down to uh, item by item. Uh, That's very typical. So it all depends. All right. And then his follow-up question is, how often do you visit the job site when they start rehabbing? Well, you know, if it's close to me, uh, right now, every day, we stop by Bear Street. I have a lot going on over there if it's out of state and the contractor you know is engaged and they're working typically my property manager or leasing broker stops by and takes pictures and sends me progress report Uh, but minimum once a week uh, it's recommended to make sure you know they're on track to finish the job all right and then a question from eric regal he said there's a vacant bank building Mm -hmm near me in a fantastic location that could get mm-hmm. split into four to six office units. It is not currently on the market as far as I know, even though it's not creating any income at the moment. Should I try to figure out who the current owner is to purchase it? And if yes, what would you do in this situation? Well, first of all, be careful with banks. There's a lot of vacant banks. The reason they're vacant for many years, they're set there. It's very expensive to uh, repurpose banks. They got uh very heavy concrete walls, the vault, just to hoist and demo the, you know, the walls to get the vault out. Um, you're talking at thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, so I would talk to a leasing broker first, get the site plans on the bank and see what does that look like uh, for you to repurpose because it may not be worth your dime uh, and your time to deal with it. Um, there's other, you know, properties that you can repurpose that don't pose that problem. So banks are very heavy on construction, especially with their vault and the thickness of the walls they put in, uh, for security, obviously, but for you to demo that it's extremely expensive. And a lot of times banks don't like windows, uh, you know, especially safe deposit box, the lower level where they have their vaults. So those are usually obsolete space. So you're paying for something you can't really get top dollars for. All right. Uh, So now we're done with the questions that were submitted beforehand the call. We'll go ahead and hop into the comments. And our first question I'm seeing is starting with Josiah. He said, uh, what cities in Orange County do you see the most opportunities in? Oh, Central and South. Um, Not Southern, uh, not, not further South than... I would say San Clemente, um, but main city, Costa Mesa, Irvine, uh, Tustin, um, obviously Newport Beach, Corona del Mar, but those are rarely you find a value at, but Costa Mesa, Irvine, Santa Ana, and Tustin uh, and Irvine are my favorite. I would consider also Lake Forest, Mission Viejo. Um, I've bought and sold properties there and done great with. Awesome. Uh, next question from Tigran. It's good to see you. 
He said, I wonder when Manny tours the property in order to buy it, what three main factors he looks and pays attention to first? Price per foot. How can I improve it? And uh, is the you know is is the property uh, located where you know? Uh, in other words, location is not a problem. You know the egress, uh, e you know access to the property. So those are the three things: price and what can I do to improve it. So if it's been completely remodeled and is you know seventy percent occupied, I'm probably not going to be buying the property, even if it's selling at a little bit discount because I can't improve it. Right. Other than just leasing it. Can you share an example when from the OM and analyzing a property, it looked like a good deal. And then you got there and saw some red flags that made you pull out of the deal when actually. Yeah. To yeah I mean, yeah. Recent property. Uh, I looked at in Irvine. It looked great price per foot below market. Um, hundred percent vacant, but when I got there to kind of the, the problem with the construction of the building was it was built in the seventies and it had very, uh, it was a steel frame, very low ceilings. And for me to, you know, you can't cure that problem. You know, it's like an eight foot ceiling, very claustrophobic. And me and my contract looked at it. I mean, we would have to demo the front of the building where the showroom was. Uh, and that one I passed on because it's just something doesn't make sense. Right. But on paper, on OM, it looked great. It looked like 20% below market. All right. Uh, next question from Ron. It's good to see you as well. He said, Manny, when you put down a non-refundable deposit, I assume you're still maintaining your due diligence period for 21 to 30 days. Yes, that's correct. Uh, often than not, when you go non-refundable day one, you're removing your physical inspection contingencies. Okay. And obviously a loan contingency. Um, a lot of times you can negotiate that. Say, hey, I'll give up, you know, uh, hundred thousand out of my two hundred fifty thousand dollar deposit for physical inspection contingency. So you get to keep the hundred grand. If I fail to close or I decide not to buy it, but uh, you know, there are still sellers performance clauses in the contract. So it's not non non refundable. If the if the uh, deadline comes to close and the seller is not able to provide clear title, or there is a delay uh, getting signatures from their partners, and it's going to go past the uh, closing date, uh, they're in default, and they have that non-refundable deposit you give up for physical inspection becomes refundable. So there is a lot of variables. All right. Uh, next, we'll go over to Ed, and he gave a few follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. on his initial he said when you said you sold the cell tower on the current property for 800k does this buyer now own the roof meaning if you sell the property they won't have rights to the roof and then Not he followed it up the seller is willing to include the cell tower as part of the deal for the right price any tips on how to gauge this asset cost also why the cell towers and not collect as an additional rent roll that's a strange uh, seller cannot say they're not going to include cell towers unless they've already uh, put it on an easement because that cell tower is on your roof. You own it. So he has no rights to it post closing. Uh, so I'm anxious to see, you know, if he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, second, how do you value it? Well, they're selling at about six cap. 
So if you can buy it for anything higher, seven or eight cap, then I would, you know, pay him the value for that at seven and a half, eight cap. This way you always have the option to uh, sell it on an easement at the six cap and pick up that Delta. And what was his other question? Uh, the first part. So when you said you sold the cell tower on the current property, mm -hmm. day, does the buyer now own the roof? Well, he has the rights for the roof uh, based on designated area we marked where they, he could add additional cell tower equipment or carriers on there. He, he can't just go on there, put solar, or put anything else. He's, the easement is for cell tower uh, operation. And even if he does put new carriers on there, um, we would have split usually 60, 40. So I would still get, you know, 40%, they get 60%. Uh, they essentially own the rights for a specific rights for cell tower carriers, not, they don't own the roof. They have the right, it's basically a 50 year lease. Uh, you're leasing a space and they're gonna go ahead and sublet it and get other carriers in and do a profit sharing with you. I know it sounds complicated, but no, they don't own the roof. They have the rights for cell tower carriers to the designated area on your roof via easement. I know I probably lost a bunch of you guys there, but. <laughs> I think it made sense. Um, all right, and then our last question for the day is from Arash said, Irvine has a lot of new residential construction that mm -hmm. is going to be available soon. Do you think there's still growth if it's purchased now? I don't know. I, I mean, Irvine is definitely a unicorn uh, location. It has always had uh, demand and a lot of draw, um, you know, increase in population. You know, where I actually see the uh, potential is restaurants. You know, there is lack of restaurants. There is only a few restaurants in Irvine that are good and often than not when I show up at Houston's in Irvine uh, it's like a 45 minutes to an hour wait to eat lunch and there's really not not many options uh, other than you know the fine dining which they're not open for lunch they're only open for dinner so I think commercial property is definitely lagging uh, from just looking at the supply demand their increase in residential new housing has boomed, but not many new shopping centers have opened uh, other than Irvine Spectrum area. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of buying a new project, um, I would be a little cautious. It's just way too many new developments. All right. All right. All right. But that, I guess I, guess I want to, uh, you know, end the session with saying happy Thanksgiving. Don't eat too much turkey and happy hunting uh, for properties. This was a great session. Um, I hope you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Be safe, be well, and see you guys next week. Happy Thanksgiving, guys.